Amen. Thank you, team. Do me a favor if you can. Track down a Bible and uh, get with me to Genesis chapter 4. And you'll find that, I believe, on page 3. So it's right at the front end, and it'll be an easy one to track down. Here's what we're doing now. We're starting a new series called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And that means that over the course of 11 weeks, we are going to, together as a church family, walk through the entire storyline of Scripture. And um, you can pick up one of these uh, children's Bibles at the table out there in the lobby area. They're five bucks a piece, so you can get your hands on one of these. And um, there's a couple different options. So if you're a family and you've got young children, we've got a study guide with uh, small children in mind. So this, you could read your four readings and there will be questions that kind of uh, lead and guide your discussions with your family. Uh, there's another option as well, and that is the, the adult version, and that's just, you know, going through the same stories, but then uh, thinking about if you were to, to have conversations with your significant other or with uh, a group of people from the church, here, there are some questions in here as well that can facilitate that. So this is for everybody, and uh, you're welcome because we just gave you a devotion for 11 weeks, and it's a children's Bible, so you're welcome. Um, but that's the plan. And then what we'll do is we'll get together on Sunday mornings and we'll jump into the Bible together and we'll look at a story from the section that you're reading during the week. Okay, so the, what happens on Sunday mornings should complement what is happening uh, throughout the week as you're reading. But we'll look at one of those stories and then we'll kind of, we'll, we'll kind of look at how it, how, how it also communicates to us that entire section. So let me go ahead and read. Uh, we're in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through 16, and then we'll pray and we'll get to work. Genesis 4, starting in 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the first fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord, looked on, the, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, right now we are asking that you would speak to our hearts. 
We pray that by your word, Lord, that you would help us to know more of who we are and who you are and, and, and what we need to do. Um, we pray right now that we would hear the, the voice of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We would hear his name whispered throughout this text and we would place our faith in him and receive all of the good things that you have in store for us. We pray this please in his name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Genesis chapter 4, if I were to, th you know, if you're thinking about the Bible, this is the very beginning of the Bible story. And um, if, if you were to think, okay, what's being introduced here in the first several chapters? In fact, if, you, if I were to say chapters 1 to 11, if I had to give you one word to describe what, what is being presented, I would give you the word sin. Um, obviously, at the very front end, there's a creation account. God is speaking things into existence, and it's good. Uh, he's, he's making things, and it's, it's good, and he makes mankind in his image. Male and female, he creates them in his image, and he declares over that. That's very good. And he tells them to uh, increase, to, to multiply, to subdue the earth and rule over it. They're, they're given this incredible dignity and responsibility, and it is very good. But then chapter 3 comes, and you recognize Something changed. In the first 11 chapters, you get the fall, the flood, and the flop. The flop, I know that's a little bit of a stretch of the imagination. I borrowed that from Walter Kaiser. But uh, there, are, there are three different major events in these 11 chapters that help us to recognize that the fundamental problem of humanity is human sinfulness. The fundamental issue that we have is the fact that we don't relate to God in the way that we're intended to. The fall after Adam and Eve were created and they're in the garden, God is speaking over them. And they're able to walk with God in the cool of the day. And he tells them, you may eat freely from any tree in the garden except for this one. You shall not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you shall die. And then the serpent comes in. We find out later that the serpent is the devil himself, but he entices Eve and Adam to take from that tree, to take fruit of it and to eat from it. And in that moment, here's what they're doing. They're rejecting God. They're saying, we're not going to listen to God's good word to us. We're going to make our own word. We're going to interpret things as we want. And we're hearing the voice of the serpent and we're following his leadership. But, but here's what's happening. This, this tremendous fall from grace happens. And God speaks in Genesis chapter 3 describing the effects of that choice. And it's described as a curse. And it's a cosmic curse. It's something that affects everything. Individuals, relationships, uh, weather patterns, all kinds of different things have been affected by this fall. But even in the midst of that curse, God says in verse 15 to Eve, one day you will have a seed. One day you will have a child and that child is going to set things right again. One day there's a child coming who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so we have the fall and we, we begin to recognize that sin is the problem that humanity is facing. You keep marching through uh, the early chapters of Genesis and what do you bump into? You bump into a flood situation. In chapter six, God is looking at creation. We don't know how everything unfolded because it's not telling us, you know, factual details about every single thing that happened, but the earth is populated and God looks at it. And this is what he says in chapter six. He saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And so Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord and he tells him to build a giant ark and to put all the animals inside of that ark. And he and his wife and his sons and their wives are to go in 
And then God is going to pronounce judgment on this world. And it rains and it floods and, and uh, 40 days and 40 nights. And finally, they, the, the you know, ark lands on some dry ground and they come out in chapter nine. And you think, okay, here we go. Uh, it's a reboot, you know, God's starting over with, with Noah now. And so I wonder how well this is going to go. You know, now we're starting all, all over and maybe sin's all done away with, but what do you find in chapter nine? You can't make it two paragraphs before Noah sins. So then you have to face the consequences. Sin is still the issue. And you keep going, that's the flood account. And then you keep going and you find out about this tower, that humanity, you find out there are 70 two nations and they're populating the world and they're getting together and they're collaborating and they're saying, let's build a tower all the way up to heaven as a monument to our ingenuity, to, to make a name for ourselves. And humanity then is basically saying, we don't need God to get to heaven. We'll do it our way. And God has to speak into that and say, you are sorely wrong. And he gives them different languages and scatters them all over the earth. So what's the one thing, the theme that's running through all of these different chapters right at the front end of the Bible? Human beings have a sin problem. The issue that we have to resolve is what are we supposed to do with the fact that we're made by God for God and we don't embrace that? What are we supposed to do with the fact that God tells us what's good and we don't listen? What are we supposed to do with the fact that instead of submitting to God's good and gracious plan for us, we often say, I want to do it my way. I want to I put my name on it. I want to do it with my strength and my ingenuity. Sin is the problem. And so when we jump into Genesis chapter four, really it's a case study. It's something that helps us to recognize sin isn't just a concept, but it's something we deal with really at the personal level. That every single one of us in here, this is the issue that, we're, that we have to reckon with, that we have to deal with. And it's the issue of sin. So Genesis chapter four, the case study of Cain and Abel. And what we find here in this case study is that sin is motivational. It's emotional. It's relational and it's punishable. There are all these different aspects that kind of come out in the story, but there are four different things that we learn about sin. The first one is it's motivational, meaning sin affects not just what we do or don't do, but it affects us to the level of why we do or don't do those things. And God is able to carefully evaluate and know the difference. We're, we find out later in the Bible that here's how we usually look at stuff. We, we examine things from the outward appearances. So we look at somebody and we say, they're a good guy or they're a bad guy. And here's why. But God looks at the heart, meaning he's aware of what is motivating a person to make the choices that they make. And sin has affected that. So we might be doing good things, but if we're doing them for the wrong reason, they're wrong. And God is aware of that. So in our story, what do we find? We find these two brothers, the first, you know, children born of Adam and Eve. And, and we find them engaging in worship, and we find out that one is doing it in a way that's pleasing to God and the other isn't. But on the surface, they look very similar. They're both worshiping God. They're both bringing their offerings. So what is the difference? Let's look at it in verses two to five. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and on his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. My question is, what's the difference? What is the difference between these two? Because on the surface level, you go, it seems totally appropriate. They're both making offerings based off of their vocation, 
off of a you know, sphere of influence that they can actually do something about. One works the soil and he's done that and he's made, you know, produce there. And so he brings some of those offerings before God. The other one is a shepherd and tends to flock. And so he brings a sheep before the Lord and God looks at that and he's able to say, there's a difference here. There's something different between these two different offerings. So I'm asking that question this week and I'm confused by it. And I don't know if you guys are too, but I'm looking at it going, what is the difference? So I read something like six different commentaries trying to figure out what is the difference. And the truth is nobody can really agree on it. They've got some really good ideas. You know, maybe the blood is the reason you, you know, you can anticipate why that would be significant, but you know, maybe it's uh, the, the fact that the one is bringing the first and the best. Um, but, but I don't know. I'm going to try to help you sort through it. But if you're just reading it, you're going, okay, what is the difference here? And what we have to recognize is that sin is affecting them at that fundamental level of their motivations. Sin is affecting how they're even going about worship. Now, here's why this is important for me and for you. You're at church. You're here this morning. So here's our question then. What would we have to do to be acceptable to God? What would we have to do in order for our offering this morning to be looked on with favor. And here's where I got hung up. If your offering has to be special, if it has to be something, you know, incredibly special, most of us are in trouble. Or if your offering has to be the best percentage of what you have to give, a lot of us don't make that cut, right? A lot of us come in here on a Sunday morning and we're not able to say with integrity, this is the best I have to give. I got myself ready this morning. This is the most ready I am for anything in the course of my week. This is my best percentage of my life. Most of us say, I squeaked in here barely. I'm just happy to be here. This is the final percentage of my life. And here I am. And so does that mean that I'm unacceptable to God? Does that mean that he's going to look on favor to some people, but me, I've got no shot. What is the thing that makes an offering, that makes an expression of worship acceptable to God? I'm grateful that the Bible doesn't leave us hanging here. Later on in the Bible, a writer will explain, and he makes it very, very clear. Here is the difference between Cain and Abel. This is the writer to the Hebrews. You'll pick it up very quickly, but here's what he says in Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offerings, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. What is the thing that made his offering so impressive? It was his faith. It was his belief in God. It was his expression of recognizing who God is and what he's done. And that definitely changes the kind of worship that he brings. He brings the first and the best. But it's, an, it's a response to his faith in God. The thing that makes an offering acceptable is faith. It's believing in the promises of God. One of the other children's Bibles uh, that we have at my house, is called The Biggest Story. It's my favorite children's Bible. And there's a line in there describing another individual from the book of Genesis. And it says about him, he didn't have much. Really, he only had these two things. Faith in God and the promise of God. And that was enough. And that's where we land. When, when we come to church and we say, what is it that God needs from us? What is it that we need to be able to say, we're acceptable before God. We need to understand the promise of God and we need faith in that. And, and most of us, that's about all we can muster up. That's about all we have, which is an okay deal because that's really all we need. 
Let me come at it from a little different angle. If you look at the names of the two sons, you get a, maybe you get a little bit better picture of what's different between the two. So let's look at Cain. What does the name Cain mean? Cain means to get or to make. So look at verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. But here's what's, you know, here's what's kind of going on. We might miss the subtlety of it. Here's what she's saying. Look at what I did. Yes, it's with the help of the Lord, but look, I, I got this child, the very first son of Adam and Eve. And she's saying, look at what I did. Look at what I made. This is my firstborn. This is the pinnacle of my life in this moment. I mean, those of you that are parents, you know what that's like to see your firstborn child. And yet there's just this excitement of, I can't believe this. This is incredible. But she's looking at this son, Cain, and she's saying, this is the one that I've made with the help of the Lord. Not only that, that name, you know, it means to make. And so Cain becomes a maker. He becomes somebody who's builds stuff, who's uh, later in the chapter, he builds a city. But here's, here, here then is what maybe his identity is. He's a maker. He can look at the stuff that he does and he can say, look at what I did. Look at, look at this. I worked this soil. I'm a hard worker. Look at my produce. Look at who I am. Look at, I'm the firstborn son. I'm the successful one. I'm the one who's going to go and build things. What, is the, what does the name Abel mean? Abel is the word vapor or breath. It means lowly. It means here for a moment and gone. It means insignificant. Verse 2, later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel is this you know, name that's given to him that basically says he's this very, he's the second born. He's not the first born. He's going to, you know, he's here for a moment and he's gone. He's insignificant in so many different ways. Well, what's the difference then? Think about the difference of their identities and how they would worship God. How, how would they approach God? I'm reminded of the story that Jesus told where he said, hey, there was a time when two people went up to the temple to pray, Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee went up and he prayed like this. God, thank you. Thank you that I am so awesome, essentially. I'm paraphrasing everything, but he's saying, thank you that I'm such a good guy. I'm not like this tax collector. Thank you that I do all these things that you expect for me to do. And then the tax collector, standing off in the distance, can't even look up in the air, but he's just sitting there going, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, only one of them goes home justified the tax collector, the one who had that spiritual humility to say, I'm not as awesome as I might present to everyone else. I need help. So these two brothers, they kind of represent these two ways to approach God. One, some of us say, God, look at everything I'm doing for you. You're welcome. Look at, look at all of this. I, I'm just such a good Christian. And some of us come before God with faith and spiritual you know, poverty. And we say, man, God, you are so gracious. And this is about all I have. And we worship him by faith, and that is acceptable to God. Jesus himself, he put it like this in his famous sermon. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who acknowledge their neediness. Those who are like Abel, who say, my offering is one of faith. It might not be the most impressive thing, but I believe in God's promise. I respond by faith to that. I worship him, and I'm so grateful for his goodness toward me. So sin affects us at that emotional level. We can, two people can be worshiping. One of them can be doing it for the wrong reason. So we need to be aware. What, what, what is the motivation of our heart? 
told you guys this before, you know, preaching, you would think, man, that's kind of like sacred ground. But the truth is my preaching is often mixed with my impure motives. My preaching is often mixed with motivations that are sinful of, I want to be liked and I want to do something impressive and I want everyone to praise me for it. And I'm often having to prayerfully untangle that stuff. But sin affects us at that motivational level. So life outside of Eden, it's hard stuff. It's tricky stuff. But sin is the problem then that we're trying to address. Secondly, sin is emotional. Sin shows up in the way that we feel. So look at verse 5. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now as he's entertaining sin, it's beginning to show up in his feelings. So God looked on favor at Abel and his offering, but on his he did not. And so all of a sudden he's saying, I'm angry. I'm not okay with this. And his face is downcast and God begins to speak to him. He begins to care for him. I notice that you are not well in this moment. I notice that your face is downcast. It's kind of like my daughter, Reese. She is very emotionally intelligent. And so, you know, though I'm a pastor, she's often pastoring me. She will look at me and she'll say, Daddy, are you frustrated right now? Or she'll say, are you irritated? Are you, you know, she'll, she'll ask questions that I just have to be like, oh, yes. Uh, because she's so emotionally perceptive. And this is a hard thing to do, by the way. Ash will tell you, I'm, I'm an emotional robot. So to pick up on any of these subtleties means you're really paying attention. But she picks that stuff up. Daddy, are you, are you irritated right now? And then she'll talk me through it. You know, do some belly breathing. We learned that at school. <laughs> but God looks at us and he goes, I understand that sin is beginning to affect you at that level of emotion. And, and I see that your face is downcast. And so this is a moment where you, you had better begin addressing it. Um, think about how sin is described throughout the Bible. It's described in all of these relational emotional terms. It's described like this. Anger, resentment, bitterness, rage, malice, slander, jealousy, discord, murder. So, so you, get, you get the picture that when sin begins to affect us, one of the places it shows up is in how we feel and especially how we feel toward others. And, and it's kind of like smoke. You know, when there's smoke, there's a fire. And I really think that if you can sense some of those feelings in you, you better start working your way, way to its source. You better start trying to figure out what is it? What's the sin behind the sin? Why am I resentful? Why am I so bitter? Why is it that when I talk to this person, I get irritable and trace it back and just begin to recognize sin is affecting me at the emotional level and I need to pay attention to that. And I need to then bring that before God and begin to confess, God, there's something going on in my heart here. It's not okay for me to be bitter or angry or jealous or, or envious or any of these different things. God, this is what's happening in my heart. Please help me to sort through this. God cares for Cain in this moment. He says, your face, why is your face downcast? He begins to speak to him. Verse six, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God is saying sin is incredibly dangerous. It is this animal. I know, you know, you look at the videos posted online, Facebook. It's like a, somebody's porch and there's a cougar on it or a bear or a pack of bear. And you go, ooh, like what, what would that be like if you walk out your door and there's two bears right there? And God is saying that's like sin. 
Like, it's like you've got this household and right outside of your door is something that is seeking to destroy you. And here's the crazy thing. Sometimes people look out their window and they go, oh, that looks cute. Come on in, right? We, we begin to look at sin and we think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Here God is saying, no, sin desires to destroy you. It, it will rule you. It, it will come in. It will invade your household and it will destroy everything. So we need to be aware that sin is emotional and it is dangerous. It's also relational. This is the third element of sinfulness. It shows up in our relationships. You can't say to yourself, it's just my issue. My sin doesn't affect anybody else. It's a private thing. Nobody else is really being affected by it. The truth is sin has this relational component to it because God made us as relational creatures. So we don't get to just make poor choices and think nobody else is going to suffer. The truth is when we embrace sin, it hurts other people. Look at how it plays out in our story. Look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So again, it's, just sh it's showing up in the relationship. There was this, this anger, this resentment. There was this jealousy about the favor of God and it resulted in him murdering his brother. Now we've got to be careful about this because there's some people that you might be able to identify in your life and you go, why do I have such strong negative feelings toward them? Why do I, why do I just immediately react to them? Because if we're not careful, it can result in murderous feelings. It can result in, in doing harm. And maybe it's physical, but maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a verbal harm where we're going to slander them. And we're going to speak ill of them so other people view them in a different light. And, and we just have to recognize, man, sin is relational. And God cares deeply about relationships. Man, and if, listen, if the firstborn child of Adam and Eve, the first, you know, right at the front end of the Bible, and God is speaking to him directly before he even takes action, if he's got all that kind of help, man, we're going to need a lot more help, aren't we? If God speaks directly to Cain before he does anything, he says, I notice you're angry, your face is downcast, do what's acceptable. And he still doesn't do it. He rejects that. And in fact, it hardens him. Um, God begins to care for him and he asks him some questions, giving him the opportunity to admit and confess and repent and experience the grace of God. But verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Can you, you guys with kids, you know how that sounds. Right? You ask the question, I don't, I don't know. And then, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. He's asking questions, not because he's unaware, but he's asking questions to try to draw out from Cain, What did you do? Why did you think this was okay? This is not okay. You, you, this, this is sin. And instead, he hardens his heart. I, I don't know what happened to him. What do I care? Am I supposed to be looking after him? And the truth is, he, he murdered him. And now he's just kind of very flippant about the whole deal. And God is saying, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. Sin is relational. If we're not careful, it will do great damage. It's not something that we can keep private. It'll hurt the people around us. It'll hurt our church. 
family. It'll hurt our loved ones. We, We need to recognize that sin is a relational and powerful reality. Finally, it's punishable. It's punishable. There's a cultural narrative that basically says God will not judge us. And it's simply not true. If you read the Bible, God looks at sin and he reserves the right to say, that is not okay. That is wrong. And I intend to do something about it. I'm going to judge it. I'm going to make it right. That's what judgment ultimately means. But look how it plays out in the story. Verse 11. Now, now this is God speaking to Cain. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. God is saying to him, that curse that you heard mom and dad talk about, that's now something you're personally going to experience. Yes, you did before as you tried to work the ground. Now it'll become a profound reality in your life. What you did deserves punishment. It's what you did. I'm aware of it and I'm judging it. But here's what's incredible about God. That is totally fair. But here's something that he does that's very unexpected. In the midst of his judgment, he mixes it with mercy. He mixes it with mercy. And that's the kind of God we deal with. Though it would be absolutely fair to say, you just killed your brother. You're going to be be punished for that. And that is totally appropriate. But in the midst of that, God is merciful to him. Cain begins to say, my punishment, my punishment is too great for me to bear. I'm going to be cast from your presence. I'm going to wander around the earth. And when somebody finds me, they will kill me. And God says, not so. Verse 15, look at it with me. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. It's a sign. It's a mark. It's the same word that's used when, it, when God puts the sign in the sky, the promise of the rainbow. And it's that same word. God is giving him mercy in the midst of that punishment. See, here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to recognize sin is the problem that we're dealing with, but God has made a way for us to receive help. He's done something for us that, that gives us protection and provision, that gives us forgiveness. He, he's done something very incredible, but we have to come to grips with the fact that sin is the problem. And the Bible is designed to help us see that as the problem and then lead us to that solution, to the Savior. And if you don't understand sin, you're not really going to understand what the Savior has come to do. But sin is something that I struggle with mightily. And Jesus has come to rescue me. And that's what, the, that's what this is about. So finally, let's do this. Let's spend the last little bit of our time asking the question, how does this story whisper his name? That's the subtitle of our children's Bible, how every story whispers his name. How does this story whisper the name of Jesus Christ. And how do we do that in a responsible way? Because I want all of us to be able to read the Bible and have this sense of how to, how to see and hear and notice what Jesus is ultimately going to do. Well, let me suggest a couple ways in which this can work. As you're reading the story, remember that it comes right after a promise. That Genesis 3.15, you will have a seed and that seed that son, that child, that, that one is going to undo the curse. And so right away, firstborn child, what should you expect? Maybe, he, this, maybe this is it. Maybe he's the one. Maybe it's an immediate promise fulfillment and this child, Cain, is going to undo the curse. And right away we realize, nope, no, he's not the one. Look at him. He's not, he's not doing what God had promised. He's doing the exact opposite. He's selfish. He's, he's doing harm. He's got a brother. And instead of caring for his brother, he's 
treating him with contempt and jealousy and ultimately killing him. Instead of doing what he should do of caring, out, caring for his brother, he's murdering him. This is not that promised seed. But you can, many of us have read enough of the Bible that we can kind of anticipate who is that promised one and, and what is he going to do? And we're familiar enough with the story that we can actually begin to read it back into this one and go, you know what? One day, a real older brother is going to come. One who actually cares. One who isn't selfish. One who isn't just kind of looking to advance his own initiatives, but one who is willing to humble himself and humbly serve other people to become obedient to death on a cross. He didn't spill somebody else's blood. He poured out his own. And by doing that, he was offering salvation to humanity. He's the one who's going to come and undo the effects of the curse. It's Jesus. But the story is leading us in that direction. It's helping us to see that Jesus is the one who we anticipate. The writer to Hebrews, again, he makes it very clear when he puts it like this. Hebrews 12, 24. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have, we have a savior whose blood he, he poured out for us. And so, you know, Abel's blood gets spilled and it's in the ground. And what's it, what, what is the, the word that God is saying? That blood is crying out to me for justice. That blood is crying out to me for vengeance. And that's the kind of thing that all of us would deserve then if, if we don't figure out a way to deal with our sin. But Jesus comes along and he pours out his blood. And what does his blood declare? Forgiven. You can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. His blood speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel. So what should we do then? Same thing that Abel did. Abel placed faith in the promise of God. Abel expressed faith in what God was doing. We need to be more like Abel. He worshiped God by faith and that was commendable. And that was why God declared, you know, his gift to be acceptable. So we need to place our faith in what? In Jesus Christ, in the savior, in the promised one, in the one whose name is whispered in our story. And so I, I want to invite you to do that right now. Uh, for some of us, it might be for the very first time. For some of us, it will be a recommitment, but I would encourage all of us to place our faith in Jesus Christ, the promised one who came to do away with sin. So do me a favor, if you're willing, please stand and the band will come and I want to pray and, uh, and I want to affirm my love for him and I would invite you to join me as well. Lord, we recognize that sin is our problem. It's not something that just needs to be managed. It's something that needs to be dealt with. And we're grateful, God, that you have made a way for us to be forgiven people by the sending of your son, by his sacrificial death in our place. And, and Lord, for anyone in here who's not placed their faith in Christ, would you give them um, confidence in this moment to make that decision, to take that step of faith and to talk to other people about it, myself or Steve on our prayer team or another member from our church, Lord, would you help people to make that profession of faith? And all of us in here, Lord, if we're, if we're Christians, we want to continually renew our faith in Christ. We're so grateful, God, that you are patient with us and that you help us to, um, 
Even when we have that kind of swagger about us where we're trying to boast in what we do, you're patient with us. Help us to get to that place where we're more like Abel, just humbly coming before you, saying, this is all I got. Belief in your promise. Help us to do that in this moment, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.